Good morning, church. He is risen. It's good to see each of you here today. I pray that you've looked forward to this day. Not only are we celebrating what Jesus did through the resurrection, we are just celebrating Him. And we have every reason to turn all of our attention, all of our focus on Him because of what He does for us. And this morning we're going to continue what we've been doing for several weeks. And so if you're a guest, you're going to get to just join right in. As we have been looking at the gospel, the good news, and how it affects different aspects of our life, different things that we experience, things that we encounter. The Paul, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That message is power. And if that can be heard, understood, received, a person's life can be changed for eternity. And so that's what we've been doing. And this morning, we, we know for sure that the resurrection changes everything. Henry Morris, a professor who passed away some years ago, he said, The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. And that's our conviction. And for over 2,000 years, we've been joined by millions of other believers as they have worshiped Jesus on Easter. Today, I've asked a good friend, uh, Rick Wimberly, to come and uh, to share his testimony with, with us. Rick is a county extension agent for Cross County. Uh, he and his wife, Paige, have been married for 36 years. When I think of Rick and so many other men in our church, I think servant. Uh, Rick meets needs, and when he sees them, he just steps in and helps. On Thursday mornings, we have a men's breakfast, and Rick and a couple other guys cook for us every Thursday morning. And as he mentioned in first service, we're still alive, we're still alive and so we're grateful for that. And, um, and so, Rick, there's a microphone. Tell us how you first came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Well, as you know, we talked, uh, I grew up at Monette and uh, wasn't as Baptist growing up. And mom and dad made sure that we came to church every Sunday. It was a little country church out in the country. And uh, even at a, a young age, I kind of felt the calling of, of the Lord to, uh, you know, make some sort of a decision. Uh, we'd have a revival or something. And I knew I was supposed to do something, but I didn't know what and didn't really know who to talk to about it or anything. So uh, we went on and went that way. And growing up, as we got a little older, uh, we would, uh, my brother and I would go to town. And we had friends that lived in town we'd hang out with down there. And uh, they went to uh, First Baptist Monette. And we were running around one day. And they told us that, uh, you know, they started talking about joining the church, joining the church. And we said, well, what's that? What's that? Well, we're going to join the church, you know, go forward. And so uh, we, uh, Listen, that, and that, that kind of brought a spark to my life, and I thought about it, and I went back home. I told Mom, I said, I want to join the church. So she was, you know, of course, overjoyed, and we met with the pastor at that time, and he said, okay, this is what's going to happen, and I'm going to ask you this question, you say this. I'm going to ask you this question, you say this. I'm going to ask you this question, say this. And one of the questions that he was going to ask me was, do you trust in your birth?" baptism or your baptism at birth 
And you say, yes. I said, okay, well, he's the preacher. You know, you do what he says. <laughs> but, uh, That's anyhow, not a bad thing, right? <laughs> but uh, so, you know, I, I did that, and I knew that, you know, that just didn't really set right. And it, there was still an emptiness or a, a question that wasn't answered. Something wasn't fulfilled yet. And as I grew up, went on through high school, and got out of high school, uh, was running around with some guys in town. And uh, of course, you know, Monette, there's a whole lot to do. You drive up and down the main street, and that's it. But uh, one particular evening, uh, it was like a Wednesday evening, I think it was, uh, one of my buddies uh, had just got out of a revival at First Baptist Monette. And uh, he pulled up beside me and said, uh, get in the car, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So we started up and down the street again, you know. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I, I'm going to tell you, he said, I rededicated my life tonight. And he started talking about what the evangelist had spoke on, about living in the world and everything. And said, and everything he was mentioning, he said, this hit me right in the face. Well, I'm sitting there beside Brad, and he's telling me all this stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, we've been running pretty tight together. Whatever, you know, he's been doing, I've been doing. So he pulled over and... Uh, he, uh, he led me to the Lord, and uh, I prayed and accepted Christ at that time. Uh, as I went on to college, uh, I found uh, my wife, and we got married uh, after my first year in college, and we really didn't settle on a church home. Uh, I, I still was not Baptist at the time, and she had grown up Baptist. She was Baptist nine months before she was born. But... Uh, uh, I knew that, you know, we got married, that we were going to have children, and I really felt that we needed to make a decision about, you know, our, de our denomination. And uh, we had friends that were going to different churches, and we tried a few in town, and uh, we ended up, we joined Central. And went, for went forward, and I went forward and, and went through Believer's Baptism at that time. When, when your friend... Uh shared with you how to become a Christian. I know that began a relationship with Jesus Christ that affects you to this day. Um, about a year and a half ago, you had an event in your life that changed a lot of things. How does Jesus work in your life through that? Yeah, October 3rd, 2015, uh, I had an accident uh, working a fire scene. And uh, my wife don't like me to say it, but I, I, I had a boo-boo. <laughs> but uh, I, I was broke up pretty good. And... At the scene, after I, they got me out from between the fire truck and the pickup, and I was laying down there, uh, I was thinking, you know, okay, toes work, everything's good. And uh, one of my fellow firefighters, Pete Duncan, was there, and I had something that was laying up on my back, and I was trying to get him to get out. He said, first, I want to pray for you. And I said, okay. I said, so, you know, he prayed. And I couldn't hear for the fire truck, but, you know, I knew that... Uh, uh, you know, he prayed, and that really meant a lot to me at that time, because you know it, it was kind of almost chaos at the time. And uh, after they got me med flighted to the med, and uh, I was there for five days, and I was in uh, health cells for about uh, well, from lot for three weeks or so. And then from that on up until December, I was at the house, and uh, pretty well horizontal, not uh, moving around a lot. And you get to sit around, and you, you, you got a lot of time to dwell. 
And, you know, a lot of times, you know, a person can look back and say, you know, oh me, oh me, you know, why did this happen to me? And really, I, ne I never had that, that overwhelming sense of just despair. Uh, I just pretty well knew from the onset that, uh, you know, God was there and he's going to bring me through it. Mm. And uh, through, uh, you know, God's work in my life and in, in restoring me to where I'm at right now and, I guess my stubbornness, you know, he's done that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of folks will say that, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're a miracle. You know, it's a miracle that what you've done. And I, I always tell them, I said, well, you know, I said, you always heard the saying that, uh, you know, God takes care of fools and children, and I'm not a kid anymore. So that, that tells me where I'm at. Very good. Well, Rick, thank you so much. Come here. We want to pray for you, and um, we're so thankful for you and your testimony of how God has worked in your life. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving Rick Wimberly. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you continue to do in his life. Thank you for giving him hope when it would have been very easy to lose all hope after that accident. Father, we know that as we speak today that there are others here who have heard Rick's story and can identify with it. They know that they need Jesus. They know that they need someone uh, who can change our life and that he's the only one. We pray today, Father, as a result of Rick's testimony of your power and your word today, that that individual's life will be changed for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Rick. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23. I want to talk to you today about the gospel on your hopelessness, the gospel on your hopelessness. We know the resurrection changes everything. And there was a moment leading up to the resurrection when Jesus was being crucified where we see the impact of the gospel on the life of a man. Jesus is the good news. And so when we talk about the message of the cross, we're talking about Jesus Christ himself. And so as we look at this story today, I want you to see, as the story unfolds, how Jesus Christ came to a man who had no hope. And by all appearances, Jesus shouldn't have had any hope either. And, and he does something that changes this man's life forever. Uh, Charles Swindoll once wrote, the benefits of the resurrection are innumerable. To list a few, our illnesses don't seem nearly so final. Our fears fade and lose their grip. Our grief over those who have gone on is diminished. Our desires to press on in spite of obstacles is rejuvenated. I want to begin reading in verse 32 of Luke chapter 23. This is the moment of the crucifixion. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, 
and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And it said, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's nothing like the loss of hope to destroy a human life. It can happen at any age. We read about the tragedies of when hopelessness bears its ultimate fruit. We call it suicide. When a person doesn't see any reason to even continue living. It happens to people of all ages. It happens about 121 times a day in our country. It's a tenth leading cause of death. The most susceptible group are men ages 45 to about 65 as, as hopelessness can creep in to a human heart. And perhaps in the entire New Testament, there are no two people who appear to be more hopeless than these two criminals, two thieves, that are being crucified with Jesus Christ. As they are being crucified, the crowd is taunting and mocking Jesus. The rulers are shouting out loud. They're saying, he saved others. If he's the Christ, let him save himself. The soldiers are doing the same thing. If he's a king, let him come down from there and save himself. Matthew tells us that initially both thieves were mocking Jesus. Both of them were saying the same thing the crowd was saying. And the soldiers were saying, if you're the Christ, save yourselves and us. But then something changed. And suddenly both thieves were not doing it. Only one thief was doing it. One thief was mocking Jesus. The other one was doing something different. Both men were hopeless. They had nothing to look forward to. They were about to die. But there was something remarkable taking place in the life of one of these thieves. Let's look at the first one. The first thief represents the way many of us react to God. In fact, the way most human beings have reacted to God through the ages. Listen to what he says in verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. See, the people in the crowd weren't saying that. The soldiers weren't saying that. But this guy on the cross, he says, what have I got to lose? (laughs) If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. And he's essentially saying to Jesus what we say to, to God. If you're God, do something. If you're God, prove it. Win me over. Show me something that I can believe in, something that I can count on. When we're in a crunch and things aren't going well, it's very easy for us to blame God. Saying, if you are God, why is this happening? And and if you want to prove yourself to me, God, here's what I need you to do. Save yourself and save me. The problem with that is that what kind of God would that be? I mean, if I have to tell him what to do, 
he's not, he's not smarter than me. And he becomes kind of my, my cosmic receptionist. He's there at my bidding to do what I want, to do my will. And, uh, and it puts him in the wrong place. And, and so this guy is shouting, and he wants, he wants him to prove himself. This is what I need right now from you, Mr. Savior. I need a Savior. And the irony of it is that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. But he didn't know it, and he didn't understand it. And many of us don't understand it either. So this first thief is someone who is, is doing what many of us do. And, and how does Jesus respond to him? He doesn't say a word. He doesn't respond to him at all. He doesn't have anything to say to him. But the second thief, this is where the change is beginning. Look at verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We're all dying. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And what's happening in the mind of this thief is he's having four big realizations that are coming to him all at once. He's moments from death, and he's beginning to wake up to some realities in his life. Here's the first one. He says, aren't you afraid of God? He realizes he, he's beginning to be afraid of God, and, and we all should be afraid of God. We shouldn't take him for granted. If God is anything like the Bible reveals him to be, I should be afraid of him. And he says that to the other thief. Aren't you, don't you fear God? And people can go through their whole life and never fear God. Can go through their whole life, never even give a thought to God. Who he is, what he might expect from them, what he wants from them. And here they are moments away from potentially meeting him. And shouldn't you be afraid? The second realization is that we're about to die. He knew death was coming. His life was about to end. And there was no hope left for him. The third realization is that we're getting what we deserve. Uh, we, we are getting, he says it this way, we're under the same condemnation and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. We're here because we deserve it. We deserve what's happening to us. And, um, and many people go through life, they don't realize that they deserve something. But sometimes they wake up to it and that's what's happening to this man. He says, I see it, I get it. I deserve what's happening. When, uh, when this is going on in, in my world. And, um, and he knew that he had sinned. It's easy for us to look at a thief and we say, well, I'm better than that. Are you? Are you any better off than that? Do you look at your life and you say, I don't deserve what's happening to me? Or do you think like this thief and say, well, I do. I do deserve this. The thing that happens for a lot of us is we tend to look at other people and we kind of put ourselves on a, on a point system. We think maybe God does it too. That in this point system, we look at certain people and we give them a grade. If you put a 100-point scale up there, we might look at Mother Teresa and give her, give her an 80. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? We might look at Billy Graham. And we, depending on your theology, you might give him a 70 or a 90 over Mother Teresa. I don't know. And, and we say, okay, that's where they are. Then you look at Don Pusick and you say, well, that's a 15 if I ever saw a 15. And, and we look at other people. We look at Hitler. We say, that's a big zero right there. That guy doesn't deserve anything from God. And so we, we look at people and we kind of think that God sort of grades everybody on a curve. And yet in, in Romans 
3.23, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so even, even if it were true, and it's not, but even if it were true that God used a point system, nobody's getting 100, and 100 is what you got to have. And only Jesus Christ lived a life that was perfectly pleasing to God. On the point scale, he pegged out. And, and so understanding that, this thief looks and he says, what's happening, this is something that I deserve. In Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Death is not something that's just natural. Death was never God's original plan. He wasn't, you know, we look at death and we say, well, death is just part of life. It's natural. It's not natural. And there's an aspect of death that ought to just really tick you off because it's not what God intended. It's not supposed to be part of this world. And, and, and what happens with death, death is something that you and I have earned. The wages of sin is death. I don't pay wages to someone as a gift. Uh, Mike doesn't work all week and and Andrea, our, our uh, payroll person, doesn't give him a check and say, here's a gift for you, Mike. Mike said, no, I earned that, right? Those are his wages. The wages of sin is death. We have earned death. And so that's the truth. All of us are facing the same ending, no matter how we compare to one another. And then the fourth big realization is this. This man has done nothing wrong. This thief, dying on the cross, looks over at Jesus Christ he knows what he deserves. He knows what the other thief deserves, but he looks at Jesus and he watches him. He hears him, this one who goes like a lamb to the slaughter. He is silent before his shearers. He's forgiving the people who have done this to him. And in the presence of God being manifested through Jesus Christ, this man realizes, he looks at Jesus, he said, he's never done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything to deserve what's happening. He's in a totally different category than me and this other guy. This man has done nothing worthy of death. I believe that as God manifested his presence through Jesus Christ, that what happened to that thief is what happens to anyone who enters the presence of God. They become immediately conscious of his holiness and their own sinfulness. And that's what was happening to this man in this moment. Jesus was dying, all right, but he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for everyone else's sins. My favorite verse on this subject is 1 Peter 2.24. It says, Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. It wasn't for his own sins, but for our sins. Now, those are the two thieves. Now, the Bible has a way of highlighting the most significant moments in an individual's life. When you see a character in Scripture, typically what you're seeing is the high watermark of their existence. And these two thieves appearing now at the scene of the crucifixion, this is the most important moment of their lives. In one sense, three men went up the hill to die, but only one was truly dead two were going to live, and this second thief, something remarkable was going to take place. But right now, here they are at this moment. They truly have, have never turned to God. They've never done anything right. They were not churchgoers or synagogue attenders. They weren't givers to charity. They weren't known as people who blessed others. They were known as people who took from others. 
and they were there on the cross suffering and dying for their crimes. But something different is happening with that second thief. He's saying, I deserve this. He looks at his life, realizes he's done nothing right, and he says, I deserve what's happening to me. So many times, bad things happen to us. Bad things happen to us. We think we're good people, and we look at what's happening and say, God, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. The truth is, we all deserve difficulty. We all deserve uh, judgment. We all deserve correction, whatever word you want to use. And this guy says, you know, my life has fallen apart, and it's my own fault. In many ways, he might be a person that's saying my marriage is falling apart. I know it's my fault. My life is falling apart at work, and I know it's my fault. My relationships all around me are falling apart. I realize now I deserve this. It's my fault. This is the consequence for the life I have lived, and this is the end, and I have no hope. And it's that moment that he turns and he says to Jesus Christ in verse 42, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, it's, it's barely a prayer. There's no demand. There's no insistence. Uh, there's no time frame. There's no commending of himself to say, I'm worthy of you remembering me. None of that is there. Barely a prayer, a simple wish. Would you remember me? Would you remember me? That's all I got. I've got nothing to bring to this. He has nothing to give. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like that you've messed up your life so badly that you've got nothing to bring to God? That's where this man was. And I want us to see what Jesus says to him that moves him from a place of total hopelessness to where hope is exploding in his heart. Jesus says something to him. How does Jesus create hope in a hopeless heart? Look at verse 43. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that points to the resurrection, doesn't it? That there's a life beyond the grave. That death is not extinction. It's actually just a transition to a whole new existence. And, and so he says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. The thing that that I think happens to the average person, including myself, when I read this, in fact, when I first started reading this, is Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And my eyes immediately go to the word paradise. And I want to think, yeah, that's what it is. You trust Jesus, you go to heaven. You escape hell, you go to heaven. And so our eyes go to paradise. But But Jesus is saying something here much more profound, much more significant that you and I need to see. He he says, today, what does he say? You will be with me. What is the thing that explodes hopelessness? It's a relationship. It's not just going to heaven and living forever and ever and escaping hell. It's a relationship. That's the thing that blows hopelessness out of the water. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus do it? Why did he go through all that pain and suffering? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he leave heaven in the first place and come on earth? Why did he do it? Well, he answers the question here. Here's my purpose. 
Today you will be with me. All of this is so you could be with me. That's his passion. That's his heart. He loves you like that. And everything he did was not just to make you clean, not just to make you righteous, not just to present you something pure before his Father, but so that you could be with him. And there are three outstanding characteristics of this relationship. Let me call attention to that. Here's the first one. This relationship is immediate. It's immediate. What's the first word he says? Today. Today. Not tomorrow. Not two days from now when he rises from the grave. Not a a year from now or two years from now. Nothing about going to a holding pattern because he's he's not done anything right. He's not gone to church. He's not even going to have time to go to church. He's not going to have time to do anything that he should have done with his life. He's not going to get it right. He's not going to overcome his big sins. He's not going to mature. He's not going to grow. None of that's going to happen for him. He's not even going to be baptized in water. You know, some people think you have to be baptized in water. That's not even there. None of that is going to happen because Jesus said today, today. I can't help but think of the old gospel invitation to him just as I am. Just as I am. Because that's all he's got. Do you see how this does away with hopelessness? He's got nothing to offer, and Jesus is not asking him for anything else. Lord, remember me. He says, all right, today, today, today. This relationship is immediate. If you trust Jesus Christ this morning, if you come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I deserve everything that has happened to me. I realize I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I realize that on my own, I have nothing to offer. I can never be good enough. I cannot take the sin out of my life. I can't even change without you. I come to you just as I am. You put your trust in Christ. Guess what's going to happen? Today, you will have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will be with him, and that relationship will start today. It's immediate. Secondly, this relationship is not only immediate, it is also intimate. He says you will be with me and so this is not just something we say is kind of code language for being a church member when Jesus talks about being with me he's talking about a real intimate relationship with Christ he says this in uh, John 17 24 this is his desire for you and me he says father I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. They can see me as I am, see who I really am, see what I'm really like. But what's his desire? That they will be with me where I am. What does he tell the, the thief? Today you will be with me. That's his heart. That's his passion. Salvation is not a religion. Salvation is not rules. It's not regulations. It's not a ritual. Salvation is a relationship with a living Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my best friend. He truly is. I talk to him. I talk to him all the time. I hear his voice. We spent nine weeks as a church studying how to experience God, and we spent a whole week just on how to recognize his voice. It's a relationship that grows. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us in many ways, but it's real. It's real, and it can begin today, And he wants you. And so it's an immediate relationship. It's an intimate relationship. And then thirdly, it's an eternal 
relationship. This day you will be with me where? In paradise. Now that word, paradise, the origin of that word is it's a word that was used to describe a park, like we have a city park or an orchard. And, and, and clearly in Scripture there's a relationship between paradise and the original Garden of Eden. Now what made the garden so wonderful was not just that it was a place perfectly designed by God for you and me to inhabit. But what made the garden so wonderful is the communion that God the Father enjoyed with his creation. He walked with man. He talked with man. And he had a relationship with man. He said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. What is it about this relationship? Well, it starts today. It's an intimate relationship, but it's one that will never end. It'll never end. Not death not sin, not Satan. There's no more sickness, none of that. It's a place perfectly suited for you to be in a relationship with God for all eternity. So Easter's a celebration of God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. But why? He defeated death and hell so you could live with him. You don't have to be hopeless. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with why am I here? What is the value of my life? There's no meaning. There's no worth. I don't need to be here. And you've, you've lost all hope. Listen, you are incredibly precious and valuable to Jesus Christ. You are so valuable to the Father who loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. He did that because you are precious to him. How much are you worth? You're worth the life of the Son of God. And so there's no reason for you to have hopelessness today. A relationship with Christ destroys hopelessness. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I encourage you to make it your own. There's no magic to the words that I'm going to say. But it's a way of praying and asking God to save you. And even if you don't fully repeat all the words in your mind or heart, make it your own. And you can just, even in your heart, say, Lord, yeah, what he's saying, that's what I want. That's what I need. If you're a Christian today and you're struggling with hopelessness, where does hopelessness get destroyed? It gets removed. It gets eroded through a relationship with Jesus. And so if you're struggling with hopelessness and darkness, where do you go to fix that, to address that? You enter more fully into your relationship with Jesus. Don't stall out. Don't, don't stand still. Say, I'm going to pursue Christ. I want to know him more fully. And so even as a believer, you can get down in the dumps, but you can destroy that by pursuing your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's pursuing you, and he loves you, and he's calling you to himself this morning. So if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, let me invite everyone, please, to bow your head and to close your eyes. And as I pray, make this your own prayer. You just pray quietly in your mind, in your own heart. And a prayer is just talking to God. And it goes something like this. Father, I realize now I've got more in common with the thief than I ever dreamed. And Father, I realize I deserve judgment. I've sinned. 
and I've made a mess of my life and I can't fix it. I realize today, Father, that only Jesus Christ can carry away my sin. I admit today that I'm a sinner and that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to carry away my sin. And now, Father, I want you to come and save me. I need your forgiveness. I want to spend eternity with you. And Lord, I don't want to just go to heaven, but I want to be with you today and tomorrow and every day the rest of my life. And I want you, Lord, to change me from the inside out. And I'm trusting you to do that. I need you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior. And I want you to be my Lord. Thank you for hearing me. And I pray this in the name of Jesus.